Revelation 4. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human face, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. But people often don't recognise me without a baby strapped to my chest. Uh, my beautiful daughter with my beautiful wife uh, are at the back. Uh, and we love being part of this church and part of this congregation. Uh, I am actually an Anglican clergyman, uh, but now working, setting up a new charity called Burning Heart, uh, which is all about exploring God's word through film and trying to make uh, films which are sort of cross between a, a Bible study, a documentary, and a TED talk, uh, digging down into themes and books of the Bible. And uh, many of you know Tom Meldrum, uh, who's the, the primary filmmaker I'm working with uh, in that. Uh, and um, it's been very exciting. Uh, forget all that now, though, and focus in on this extraordinary moment and this extraordinary scene in heaven, in this, in this throne room. And I, I'd like you also to take your minds back and your hearts back about five or ten minutes to that, that place of the presence of God that we've just been in. And, and it's felt, has it not, like we have caught a glimpse of that heavenly throne room 
and that, that God has been here in our midst, drawing us closer to him. And I, I want to ask you to come to this next bit with the same expectation and excitement and hunger to encounter the presence of God that, that you've just had there. And I want to pray that God blows our socks off in this next bit. And as we turn from worshipping him and crying out to him, uh, we would hear him speak to us from the throne. So I'm going to pray uh, before I properly start. Lord God, would you come? Would you come by your Holy Spirit? Would you continue to fill this place in our hearts and would you not just speak to us, but would you shout to us by your word? Amen. It, it is the most extraordinary scene. As we, we are called up with John into the very throne room of heaven. And what we witness there is nothing short of God himself. And yet, and yet, in a way that we can't quite grasp or get our heads or minds or comprehension round. We, we sung a moment ago about him being beautiful beyond comprehension, wonderful beyond description. And, and this, is, this is the sort of the, the verses that I'd go to if I had to give word to, to what that means and what that looks like. Because uh, here we, we see a vision in which God's beauty and power and glory are set before us in words and images and pictures that we can just about begin to grasp. And it takes some of the most awesome and powerful and beautiful and amazing uh, words and images in, in our languages and in our, our comprehension. And it, it pushes them right to the edge and then it pushes them a little bit further. And we see when he begins to describe God himself on the throne, he says, the one who sat there had the appearance. He looked a little bit like. I can't quite get there, he's saying. I can't quite describe it, but I'll give it my best. And he says he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And then there's this rainbow like an emerald around him. And Jasper and Carnelian, they're not words familiar to us, but they were ancient words which spoke of hard and sort of rock-like stones which were at the same time full of colour and translucent. And so there's a dazzling beauty and strength which is summed up in this kind of amazing image which to people who weren't used to Hollywood films and all the kind of um, audio-visual that we get um, from every corner sometimes. This, this would have been just the most amazing image that they could possibly kind of grasp or, or, or describe. And, and he's saying, yeah, God's a bit like that, but there's this sense, but he's a whole lot bigger. He's a whole lot better. You, you can't quite describe him. And then the whole of the rest of this scene is, is designed to sort of underline and push that a little bit further. You think of the songs that, that are sung in this moment, and each one speaks of the greatness of God. As uh, the, the, the creatures sing, holy, 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 and we see his unique and incomparableness. And then he's declared to be the Lord, the Lord of history and of the Old Testament and the God that they've been worshipping, but he's also the Almighty. I mean, what a word, Almighty. And then he's the one who is, 
who was, who is, and who is to come. The, the only one who's uncreated, whose existence doesn't flow from anything or anyone else. The only one who just is in and of himself. And then everything else, as they move on to seeing of what he's done in creation, you and me, all that you can see around us, everything only exists because of him, because he created it. And it only exists because he continues to sustain us. If he stopped sustaining us, we'd all disappear in a puff of smoke, except there'd be no smoke. And, and they sing of this awesome God. And then, and then even the people who are there and their presence and what they're doing, again, speak of God's glory. We have these 24 elders, they a bit mysterious to us, but, but they represent us. 24, it's 12 plus 12, representing the, the Old Testament people of God, the 12 tribes, and the New Testament people of God, the 12 apostles. And they are the redeemed, purified, perfected humanity. And they, they are the, the, the greatness, uh, the, the authority, the power, all the achievements, the glory of man. And all they can do with that glory is just cast it down before the Lord in adoration and worship because he is so far and above better and greater and more wonderful. And, and then we have these, these strange creatures which are quite weird and wacky and unfamiliar to us, but for John, he'd have known immediately what they were because the, 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 the creatures, they're unfamiliar to us, but their image was woven and carved in stone and, and in textile in the palaces and temples of the ancient world. And they are all over the place in the Old Testament and in the great temple in Jerusalem. And, and you, you don't recognize them, but you know their name. They were called in Hebrew cherubim, which has been anglicized as cherubim. And you're thinking chubby little babies with wings. No, push that to one side. These awesome spiritual beasts, which sort of sum up the greatness of the animal world, but also spiritual power and authority and might, they are the cherubim. And if you'd gone into the Old Testament temple, you, well, you wouldn't have been allowed in because nobody was allowed in apart from one guy once a year. But if you had been, you'd have found at the heart of it was this place called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the symbolic place of the presence of God with his people and with humanity. And in the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing his relationship with them. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the atonement cover, and on top of that, the sculptures of two cherubim. And in the Old Testament, one of the great names or titles that is given to God is that he is the one who sits enthroned above or among the cherubim. And suddenly that is made real before John's eyes. That which was only a shadow of the heavenly realities, well, he's now transported to see the heavenly realities. And in this moment, he is caught up into the holy of holies that is at the heart of heaven itself. And he sees the Lord. He sees the one who is enthroned among the cherubim. He sees the one who is beautiful beyond comprehension, wonderful beyond compare. And as he writes it down, he, he drags us and brings us along with him. And it is the most awesome, amazing, mind-blowing picture but it is also incomplete. Incomplete. I hope that word is jarring to you. 
It seems almost blasphemous to say it. The glory of God, God lifted high and thrown amongst the cherubim. Nah, that's not enough. There's something missing. There's something wrong here. And it would be blasphemous if it wasn't for what comes next. Because Revelation 4 is just the start of the story. It's the beginning of the scene, not the end. And John continues. And the next couple of verses are amongst the most jarring verses in the whole Bible. Because against this backdrop of the glory of God set forth in a vision, well, he then continues. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside it. The beauty, the splendor, the glory of Revelation 4 is marred and ruined by the sound of weeping. And all that is missing something. And there is a dissonance, a dodgy chord in the midst of the perfect vision. What is going on? What is this scroll, surely we're asking? What could it be? Well, scholars will spend probably the most of the rest of your life uh, arguing about what the different uh, bits of it could be. But as is often the case with Revelation, if you dig deep and you go into the details, you'll find there's lots of gold there. But if you can't understand the details, actually the broad brushstrokes are gloriously clear and you can hear the main message sort of coming through. And if you read on, it becomes clear that this scroll is the, the decrees, the plans, the purposes of God. And the plans and the purposes of God for us, for this world that we live in. And the thing that is wrong and dissonant in this vision is that Revelation 4 is only heaven, but not earth. It's this amazing vision of perfection and the glory and the splendor of God, but the plans and the purposes and the decrees of God is that that is supposed to overflow and cascade down into this world in which we live. This glory is meant to be and will ultimately be, as we'll see, spoiler alert, our destiny, our experience, and it's not. My life doesn't look like that. Even my best moments, that worship time, it was awesome, but it wasn't Revelation 4 quite yet. And I live in, well, my life has got so much brokenness and sin and struggles in it. And, and all of us wrestle with the, the, the sin and the brokenness in us and with the stresses and the strains and the illness and the problems and the, the relational breakdowns and all the rest of it that is part of our daily lives. And we live in a world where there is a war in Ukraine, where millions of people will die of poverty this year, where there is coronavirus, where there is cancer where there is racial injustice and rank injustice in many other ways as well, where there is global warming and we are polluting and destroying the world, and it doesn't look like Revelation chapter 4 
and it should. And because we're so used to it, because that's just the world that we live in and, and we're, we're not surprised by it, it often doesn't hit us. But sometimes it does. Sometimes there's the, the shard of a whisper in our mind that says, no, it shouldn't be this way. Ah, why? The great cry of the suffering throughout the ages, why? Why is it like this? And if you listen to uh, the, the naturalistic God uh, to one side views of the world, there is no answer to that question, no reason why the world should be any better than it is. But somehow deeply rooted in the human soul is the realization that I was made for better. And so are you. I was made for Revelation 4. I was made to cast my crown before God Almighty and join in the eternal song of worship. And life as I know it does not match up. And that is because the scroll can't be opened. That is because there is a rot at the heart of humanity that mars this world. A rot that is so deeply at the heart of humanity that it's not just a problem that Vladimir Putin has. It's a problem that I have. And so I weep and I cry with John because something is wrong. Something is missing. But of course, friends, as we've just been singing, that is clearly not the end of the story either. And so in this place of weeping, one of the elders reaches out to John. But just before we, we get that, I want to hold us in that space. Because I think too easily we move on from that because we want to get to the end of the story. We want to get to the good bit. We want to be laughing and clapping and rejoicing and worshipping it again. But we, we need to deeply relearn how devastating and awful that is. How catastrophic my sin is and the results of my sin are for you and for everyone. Because only when we've plumbed the depths there can we actually just begin to glimpse and appreciate what glory there is in the answer and solution that comes next. And to which we turn now as the elder stops John and he says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What a moment. It's sort of dripping with power. You can almost hear the lion roar. You don't need to know anything to know that this is a, an awesome moment. But if you know a little bit of the Old Testament, then it's, it, it's full of, of imagery and meaning. And the Lion of the tribe of Judah takes us back to Genesis 49, and one of the great messianic prophecies, when Jacob prophesies over his son Judah that from his line will come the kings and the rule and the scepter, the Lion of Judah. And then in the next breath, we're with the greatest king, the one who sort of summed up in many people's minds this messianic hope, David himself. Except for we're moving beyond David and we're in the words of Isaiah where this idea of the root of David comes. Except for, I don't know if you noticed, it's not the, the branch or 
the, the seed of David. It's the root. This descendant of David, this great Messiah, this king who will fulfill all of God's plans and purposes for the world is the root and the origin of David as well. And we're catching glimpses that the Lion of Judah, that Jesus the Messiah is not just God's chosen king, the man who will bring out his purposes, but is himself God. And this is the moment of his triumph. This is the most powerful moment, you might say, in all the Bible, in all of human history, the moment when God's plans and purposes for humanity triumph, when the scroll is open, the seals are broken, and everything we've sung about gets let rip. So we're thinking, what is this moment? What is this triumph? When does God do all this, and what does it look like? And then in the next verse, again, we find something surprising. Because he hears of a lion, but what he sees, well, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And this moment of power is suddenly focused in on weakness, the weakness of a slaughtered lamb. And suddenly we realize that we are at the cross. We are at Calvary. A moment that seems the very epitome of weakness. Outside a city wall in a barren and forgotten backwater of the Roman Empire. A scene that nobody else was paying any attention to. As a man who'd seemed to have gained some notoriety for a while, crashes and burns and is executed as a criminal, a final, humiliating, torturous, crushing death. And yet suddenly, as God rolls back the curtain of the heavenly realms and shows us what is actually going on, we discover and we realize that that moment of apparent weakness is the greatest moment of power in the history of the world. As once Paul put it, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And here we do see the weakness of God because it is through weakness that all this is achieved. The lamb is slain. Jesus does die in submission, surrender, and self-sacrifice. But as he does, he cracks open those seals and he brings God's rule and reign into reality. And as he does, well, heaven goes nuts. You thought that we were a bit jazzy in our worship? Not, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, because, well, the lamb standing at the center of the throne is given the scroll. And then he, he takes it, and they all just start worshiping. And I love the song that they sing. You are worthy, they cry to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I mean, it's, a, it's an enticing and exciting vision but what are they worshipping Jesus for in this moment? What are they saying makes the lamb worthy of all this Adoration. Because you were slain, 
The cross isn't a defeat that is then reversed. It's not a a moment of weakness that is overcome. No, it is the center point of history itself. And in eternity, in heaven, they, we will be worshiping God and God the Son for what happened in that moment. They worship him because he was slain. And there's more. Because he was slain, and with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, that's you. The translators of the King James chucked in an us at this point. Purchased us. And I checked. It's not there in the original, but but I think it's true theologically. It's the elders, actually, who who are singing at this point, who represent all of us. And they are there, and we will be there because of the cross. And it's a mind-blowing thought that in heaven, God is being worshipped. Jesus is being worshipped because of you. Not because of anything good you've done, I'm afraid. In fact, probably quite the opposite. He could save even me, even you. And that. That is what unlocks everything that then follows because we we are redeemed, we are made whole, we are made holy, we are made perfect. And then he sends us to be the kingdom and priests to serve our God and to reign on the earth and through us uh, because of what Jesus has done, through the power of the cross, that the seals are opened and God's vision for this world begins to become a reality. And so what we see at the center of the throne is the lamb. I don't know if you noticed that. Where is the lamb? The lamb is at the center of the throne, the place of the glory of God. Again, the divinity of Jesus is set before us. And and with the the seven horns and seven eyes representing the seven or sevenfold spirit of God. And the seven is just the number of completion or fullness. We see the whole trinity, but we see the full godness of Jesus. And we see that Jesus hasn't just been sent into bat. A a man who was sent in as a sort of innocent scapegoat who was the victim and, and didn't have any choice about it. Jesus isn't just another man who who made good. No, he is God himself in human form, triumphing over all the powers of death and darkness and the problems and difficulties of the world. And when you sit there and you say, why? And you cry out, what is wrong with my life? And you think, why is it this way? Why am I suffering? Why do I have stress? Why uh, do I have issues in uh, friendships and relationships? Why do I have illness? Why is there coronavirus? Why is there cancer? And when you look at the news and you say, uh, what's going to happen? The war in the Ukraine, the global warming, racial injustice, all the rubbish that I was talking about before, what's the answer to all this? That's the answer to it. Jesus is the answer to it. It is the cross. And it is awesome, right? It is awesome. And and we just don't grasp it. I I, I nearly preached on one of the stories of of the cross. I've asked to preach on the power of the cross. And I realized we miss it so easily because we know those stories. 
We miss it so easily because we say and sing, Jesus died for me all the time. And, and we don't weep as we say it. We're not flattened and floored with the enormity of it because we miss what we see in this moment as we see the cosmic and heavenly implications of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is everything. And everything will be well. It's not a cliche. It's not platitudes. Everything will be well because the lamb was slain. And if you read through the rest of the book of Revelation, that's what you find. Except you, you might say to me, okay, 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 okay. You know, I love it. It's all very good. But there is still a war in Ukraine. There is still global warming. There is still racial injustice. I've still got a lot of problems in my life. I'm a bit stressed at work, whatever it might be. Why doesn't my life look like that? And, and is this really real? And actually, the whole point of Revelation is to answer that question in many ways. It was written to a people who were suffering one of the first great persecutions of the church. And uh, the emperor Domitian, a dictatorial and genocidal maniac who makes Vladimir Putin look cuddly, was, was after the church. And they were small, and they were beleaguered, and they were dying. And it didn't look like Jesus was Lord, like Jesus was king, like the lamb who was slain would win. And they, well, they got revelation revealed and sent to them. And the point of Revelation was to say, it may look like that, but God rules. There's a, there's a commentary I've got. I confess I haven't actually read it, but it's got a great title, which sums up Revelation. The Lamb wins. That's Revelation. The Lamb wins. And actually, maybe better, the Lamb's already won, because the cross has already happened. And and, and, and we still stay in this place for a moment. And as they begin to open the seals, actually what we see is quite harsh and difficult because as God sets the world to rights, that involves judgment on those who stand against him. And there's a moment, though, uh, when all the martyrs, those who've been slain for Christ, say, how long, O Lord? And he responds, just a little bit longer. And he says, just a, bit, a little bit longer while more are being added to to our number. And God is delaying, bringing it all into purpose because he wants to bring more people to him, which is quite a scary thought when you realize that the only reason why Jesus hasn't returned and wrapped the whole of humanity and history up is so that you and I can do evangelism. Um, that puts a different spin on things, but, but, but he's waiting. But this shows us it is completely and utterly certain. And the end of the story comes in Revelation 21 and 22, which suddenly is a vision as glorious and mind-blowing and comprehension and imagination shifting and stretching as Revelation 4, but now it's no longer just heaven. It's the recreated new heaven and new earth. And we are in the middle of it, and God and the Lamb are at the center. And that is what our hearts and souls have longed for, for all of eternity. And it is wonderful and it is mind-blowing. And I think that's where I'll leave it. Can I ask you to stand, though? Because I want you to respond. And I had a word as I was praying this morning before we started that, 
that there, there would maybe be people here and, and your faith is, is either small or has been challenged. Um, you, you, maybe you're not quite sure whether you're even a Christian yet. You don't quite know what you believe or you're a bit shaky in, in all these things or, or you've been going through an awful time. And, and those questions of why and those gut cries, that's where you are. And I want to pray particularly that God meets with you, that God makes real what I've said to you, not just now, but tomorrow morning when you wake up. And, and for all of us, that he expands and blows our minds with this vision of God and of Christ and the power of the cross. So I'm just going to shut up and just pray, come Holy Spirit, and let him do the rest, and then hand over to James, and he can lead us further into, into God's presence. Come Holy Spirit, we pray. Come Holy Spirit. If you do have a gut cry, I might be wrong about this, but there might be someone who feels that, feel free to share it. Um, don't, don't feel you have to be all Anglican and, and silent, but yeah, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And, and for some who've been Christians a long time, there was a song a few years ago, May I Never Lose the Wonder, the Wonder of the Cross. Have you lost the wonder? Lord, if they have, would they regain it now? Open their eyes. Open their eyes. Come, Holy Spirit.